Welcome back. March 3rd, 2021. Will there ever be an accounting? MedPage reports during the pandemic, teens' mental health services accounted for a much greater proportion of all their medical claims than in the past, especially last March and April, according to a new Health White paper. Mental health claims essentially doubled as a percentage of all medical claims for individuals aged 13 to 18 in March and in April more than doubled compared with the same periods last year. We know that teenagers already have high rates of mental illness, one of the lead investigators said. Now with the pandemic, their parents are starting to struggle with relationships, jobs, food security. Just ups the ante. We already see vulnerability, and this just makes them more vulnerable, close quote. Looking at specific categories of mental health claims, the report showed a huge jump in intentional self-harm claims as a percentage of all medical claims, rising 91% and nearly doubling in April of 2020 compared with the year prior. Again, women were up to five times as likely as males to be treated for intentional self-harm involving means such as drowning, firearms, smoker fire, sharp objects, and motor vehicle crash. Claims for overdose, drug overdose among teens, rose 95% versus the same months in 2019, and substance use increased 65% and 63% respectively in March of April. Those trends are consistent with recent CDC reporting that found the highest number of U.S. overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period, 81,000, for the 12 months ending in May of last year. Overdose deaths were already increasing before the pandemic, but the rate accelerated. Generalized anxiety disorder claims were up 94%, major depressive disorder claims up 84%, and adjustment disorder claims rose 90% over the year prior. While these three conditions were consistently the top three prior to the pandemic, other disorders other disorders shifted in prominence. For instance, eating disorders moved from sixth to fifth and stayed there through at least November. Overall, trends were similar for adolescents ages 19 to 22, but were less pronounced than for 13 to 18-year-olds. Will there be an accounting? Any kind of answering for this deliberate and foreseeable trauma. Why do I say deliberate and foreseeable? Two generalized reasons, the first with three parts. One, A, we knew early on the recovery rates for COVID were higher than almost any other disease or problem one can think of, recovery and survival rates. B, we know early on that children were not susceptible and transmitters of COVID in the way that the rest of the population was. And C, we knew who the vulnerable population was, and it wasn't children. That's the first reason. Second, foreseeable for those who trusted the right scientists and not teachers' unions and panic panjandrums. In May of last year, Eleanor McCants Katz gave the following address from the White House. It was ignored by almost the entirety of the media, though not this show. Dr. Katz is both a psychiatrist and a Ph.D. in public health and was the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. When I quoted her directly last year on this, which she said, YouTube took it down. Here's what she said. Never did I imagine the nation would be experiencing the coinciding of mental health issues and infectious disease that my training addressed. The research literature is clear on the effects of quarantine 
and stay-at-home practices on mental health. We know that the longer the duration of these disorders, the greater the intensity of the mental health problems experienced. We also know that these symptoms persist for years to come, even once quarantine is lifted. The data tells us that when the lives of adults, children, and families are drastically changed for extended lengths of time, for many, anxiety, depression, and stress disorders will become manifest and will persist. These are real health conditions with potentially long-lasting consequences that must be taken seriously. To put all this in perspective, I believe it is important to point out that pre-pandemic, we were losing about 120,000 lives a year to drug overdoses and suicide. How many more lives are we willing to sacrifice in the name of containing the virus? When we look at strategies to reopen as a medical doctor, I ask that you take into account whole health, not just one narrow aspect of physical health. We continually ask ourselves what the health costs and risks may be of reopening, but I ask what might they be of not reopening or reopening in such a restrictive way that American lives are not restored. Of course, containing the effects of corona are critically important, but so too is preventing suicide. So too is keeping a person from being terrified to ever leave their home. So too is protecting the mental health of our nation's young people. I ask you to remember, too, that not every home is a safe home. Not every individual can withstand the trauma of not seeing or interacting physically with loved ones. Not every parent can survive the mental anguish of not being able to feed their children because of lost employment. Not every child can exist in a healthy way without the structure and support of school. We have to take a step back and recognize the other effects of our policies. While we contain the virus, are we increasing the risk for suicide and drug overdose? Are we creating a future of substance use and addiction for millions of additional Americans? And if we are doing these things, why have we decided collectively that it's okay? We've worked so hard in states and communities across the country to combat academics like the opioids crisis. Why are we willing to forget those efforts now or deem them so much less important? As a psychiatrist, I would argue that a life lost to suicide is just as important as a life lost to COVID. A family who loses someone to drug overdose experiences the same grief as a family who loses a loved one to COVID. Let us not forget that all American lives are precious. Our citizens count on us to remember their health and safety in all respects of life. Preservation of Americans' health and the health of our citizens cannot be measured by only one metric. Virus containment cannot be our only goal, no matter the cost to America. If we ignore the reality of the enormous mental health strain we've put on our citizens in the backdrop of an already overburdened mental health care system, I'm saddened but certain that the next major public health crisis of our time will be that of mental and substance use disorders, and it's not far behind. I urge you to factor this reality into your planning, and I thank you for the work you've done thus far on behalf of the millions of Americans with mental health and substance use disorders. Before she gave that speech which was, again, in May of last year, two authors wrote this for Fox News. Quote, The closings have caused and will cause even more social damage for a great many of these children and their parents than the coronavirus ever could, all to protect children from a disease that will not directly affect them. The standard argument that social policy is often deployed or changed to protect the children or in the name of the children has been turned on its head 
Adults have engaged in some of the most drastic social policy change in our history for something that will not harm children while their solutions will. Their educational deficits may be the least of the problems. Schools and after-school programs and sports, after all, are not just the center of our children's educational and social lives. They are often the place and sometimes the only place where many children receive nutritional meals, have strong adult presences, and are safe from harmful drugs and harmful adults. For those children who are in functional homes, parents already taxed from work and other coronavirus policy stresses are taking on added responsibilities and work. This radical decision to close schools will not end well for too many children or adults, close quote. Those words were written and published by Bill Bennett and myself. We were condemned. Fine. The condemnation didn't matter. The social destruction we now face does. There needs to be an accounting. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. It is a great product that I take every single day. It is the most effective fruits and vegetable supplement on the market. And I say supplement, it's not even really a supplement because it is made directly right from actual fruits and vegetables, all natural, no sugars, no chemicals, no GMOs, third-party tested for impurities, It'll improve your health, it'll boost your immunity, and it'll give you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables every single day with just one daily dose. Powerful, strong stuff from apples to pineapples, from garlic, celery, and wheatgrass to onions, kale, and carrots. All in vegetarian capsules. Fantastic product, and they're making it easy for you to get. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Just give them a call at 800-246-8751 or check them out at balanceofnature.com. That's balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE, B-A-L-A-N-C-E. Carrie Lake is uh, perhaps one of the more well-known, if not the most well-known, local television Porter's longtime anchor here at Fox 10. And um, she uh, left it all behind. She walked away. She is resigning not just from Fox 10. In, uh, I don't know how old she is, but what I'm gathering is the prime of her life, but from all journalism. She says she can't take it anymore. Listen to this video message she posted. Hi, everybody. I've got some news I want to share with you. Since so many of you have sent me messages while I've been on leave asking me how I'm doing or when I'll be back, many of you left kind messages telling me that you miss me. I appreciate all of the messages, and I miss you too. This time away from work has given me a chance to reflect on my work. 22 years ago, Fox 10 hired me and paired me up with John Hook to bring you the news every night. Shortly after becoming a team, we jumped in the ratings and we've held the number one spot for almost all of our time together. Anyone who's worked in TV news can tell you that is not an easy feat and it's one I'm extremely proud of. And I thank you for that 
for tuning in and inviting us into your homes. Sadly, journalism has changed a lot since I first stepped into a newsroom, and I'll be honest, I don't like the direction it's going. The media needs more balance in coverage and a wider range of viewpoints represented in every newsroom, at every level, and in each position. In the past few years, I haven't felt proud to be a member of the media. I'm sure there are other journalists out there who feel the same way. I found myself reading news copy that I didn't believe was fully truthful or only told part of the story. And I began to feel that I was contributing to the fear and division in this country by continuing on in this profession. It's been a serious struggle for me, and I no longer want to do this job anymore. So I've decided the time is right to do something else, and I'm leaving Fox 10. I thank Fox for their understanding as I've come to this decision, and I am grateful for the opportunities they provided for me to cover so many big stories over the years. As I close this chapter of my career, there will probably be some hit pieces written about me. Not everyone is dedicated to telling the truth, but thankfully many of you have figured that out. I promise you, if you hear it from my lips, it will be truthful. It is scary walking away from a good job and a successful career, especially in difficult times. I know God has my back and will guide me to work that aligns with my values. I feel such a deep connection to all of you wonderful Fox 10 viewers here in Arizona and those I've met and interviewed over the years. Thank you so much for your trust and friendship all these years. I will keep in touch and I hope you will do the same. I think that's just... Extremely impressive. Extremely impressive. She says, I haven't felt proud to be a member of the media. I'm sure there are other journalists out there who feel the same way. I found myself reading news copy that I didn't believe was fully truthful or only told part of the story. Good for her for not participating in the great myth, the great lie any longer. And... As we're rethinking a lot of things over the past year, perhaps educating our children in the way we do so, being chief among them, the way we get our news, what the profession of journalism is, being another, um, I think we're going to see a little more here and there of this, particularly from journalists who do walk away or get fired and feel like they have nothing left to lose. Donald McNeil, I think, is such a person. He was, um, for more than 30 years, a reporter at the New York Times, one of their most senior reporters. And he was fired from the New York Times just about a month ago. His crime was, while in Peru of all places, with a group of students, of all things. He was engaging in, an, in a discussion, an intellectual discussion, about the appropriate and inappropriate use of the N-word. He wasn't using the N-word. He wasn't perpetrating the use of the N-word. He was engaging in a discussion about it, how toxic it can be, why sometimes some groups get away with using it and others can't or shouldn't or don't, what made it prominent, 
what makes it toxic. He was fired after more than 30 years at the New York Times. And he wrote a piece, or he's writing a piece, I should say, in several parts at Medium, medium medium.com, which is increasingly becoming a place where people can publish who can't get published in places like the New York Times anymore. He wrote this. I find it pretty interesting, too. We journalists make America what it is. Without a free press, democracy dies. But we're jackals. We can befriend you for years and then bite off your arm just as you're offering us a treat. We can't help it. It's the nature of the job. That's the game. I'm somewhat relieved to be out of it. But after 50 years, if you count writing for my high school magazine, I'll probably never be able to shake these habits. Since January 28th, I've been a jackal circled by jackals. Since not every journalist gets quotes right, on the rare occasions in my life that I've answered journalists' questions, I've tried to do so in writing. That why, either they get it right or I can prove I was misquoted. I've been misquoted a lot. I just find it really interesting that he says we're a bunch of jackals. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's the nature of the job. Does anyone want to be part of that profession? If that's so true, is that what you want to be? You want to be a jackal? Is there going to be any kind of comeuppance for the profession of journalism? Even as it says things like, so self so so self-referentially, we make America what it is. I fear he's right. That's the worrisome thing. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 after the hour brings us John Dombrowski and our culture and economy update. John is the president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. Happy Wednesday, John. Hey, how's it going, Seth? Really well. How about yourself? Fantastic. What a great day. Good. A little windy out there. Yeah, a little bit, but a beautiful day. Spent a lot of time outside today. So we have a, a birthday in the house today. Oh, you do? Well... I would say in the country, Florida. Yes. Which became the, uh, I believe it was the 27th state, maybe, on this date in 1845. Yes. Of course, we do love Arizona. Yes. uh, But but that that, that was, we wish wish Florida a happy birthday. It's an interesting question. Uh, Someone asked me actually the other day, outside of Arizona, what's your favorite state? Mm. And um, boy, I'll tell you, Florida is wonderful. And it's 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 unfortunate. My answer may surprise you. It may not. But it may surprise some of the audience. And and I hate to give it, John, because the state has basically destroyed itself. And it's California. Yeah, I think everybody thinks California. I is love a, Cal- a beautiful, I, I love beautiful state. Yeah. Yeah. But they've got so much going on over there as far as what their resources are and the just the, you know, the beauty of the landscape of, of the state. Uh, but you're right. There's a yeah. Of, I love what God did to California. I yeah. hate what man did to it. Is that a fair way to yeah, put that's it? That's a fair way to put it. And I heard apparently, I forget what what county or city or community it was that they banned now any new permits for uh, gasoline pumps. Yeah, perfect. And now they're also limiting. Actually, they said any existing gas gas stations will no longer be able to add new pumps either. And this is all for that push for um, 
you know, to get off of Just the, making uh, it impossible to live yeah. there. Making it impossible. Talk exactly. to me about this, John. Yes. Um, I, we, once in a while we talk about it, and it's been a while. The Federal Reserve's Beige Book. Beige Book. Right. Talk to me about what that is and uh, how it bolsters some of your point from yesterday about things turning around. Yeah, well, I guess there was a report that did mm-hmm. come out just here. Mm-hmm. Just I think it was only like an hour or two yeah, ago. Yeah. I, I didn't get a chance quite to read it yet, but apparently it looks like there's some positive information mm-hmm. in the report uh, due to the vaccines. Also, uh, some hiring, although we did see a little pullback in hiring. There's a little disappointment in hiring uh, uh, for jobs this past week. But um, they're uh, looking forward. Uh, and one of the things, too, yesterday, I think, Seth, I don't know if we mentioned this yesterday, but age 55 plus now. Right has been added to the list uh-huh. for uh, COVID-19 uh-huh. vaccines. So yeah. if you're 55-plus, you want to get the vaccine, good luck trying to get uh, an appointment. But uh, I've tried a few <laughs> times, and I have not. Oh, is that right? Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. Yeah, it said, oh, there's an appointment. As soon as I clicked on it, I I didn't that realize you were in that age category. Uh yeah, I'm well in that. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for that. Yeah, well, I just didn't realize that. Uh-huh. Um, but so based on what the uh, report shows here that, yes, um, based on the um, uh, vaccines that have been given, uh, looking looking forward, the U.S. economy continued to grow modestly, it said, for uh, the beginning of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really where we're starting to see some real growth is in leisure and hospitality. Mm-hmm. And we did see a couple of uh, companies today, even though the market had a, a pullback today, we did see some of the others that did have strength, and those were in the leisure and hospitality sector of the markets with the expectation that, hey, we're going to be opening up. People want to get back on an airplane. People are going to be staying in hotels. Uh, and those uh, cruise lines, these are the areas that the market that was a little bit better today than the rest. You know, it dawned on me finally yesterday why some of these governors and mayors have been trying to restrict travel so much, particularly around the holidays. Mm-hmm. I had a friend here yesterday, Hugh Holman, former mayor of Tempe. You may mm-hmm. know him a little bit. And he said he had some visitors from Oregon uh, and uh, Washington State. Right. And they were just blown away by how we live here in Arizona, mm. uh, freedoms we have yeah, <laughs> that yeah. people had up until about a year ago in places like Washington and Oregon. Mm-hmm. They say, you guys just live like the. I understand why they, the, the, the officials there didn't want them to travel and see that you, you can live. You can live this way somewhat normally. And Texas is finally, I guess, along with Mississippi, you're going to oh, see yeah, some other states open. now yeah. say, we're yeah. done. We're yeah. done here. And, yeah. and you do see, you know, in this report from the Facebook yep. report, uh, New York uh, area economy declined mm-hmm. modestly, whereas, yeah. of course, many others are starting yeah. to uh, move move higher. So, And that's not, you know, anything that we wouldn't have expected based on what the policies have. No, uh, that's right. You close your economy, yeah. you're going to close your economy. Pretty simple proposition, isn't yeah. it? And that's what, you know, we're seeing in California yep. as well, the people leaving by droves. So yep. uh, better, I guess, for the rest of the world here. We're getting getting uh, some new blood in our states, and hopefully we'll get some good, productive people over here. Betcha, John. All right. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and Cipic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Bless you, so sir. Much. Thank you. Talk, Thank you. Talk soon. Bye-bye. I'm at 602 Give us a call. We'll, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Is Andrew Cuomo going to make it or not? I don't know. He says he, today in a press conference he's not planning to resign. He won't resign. 
uh, his governorship of the state of New York. He never touched anyone inappropriately, and he feels badly that he made other people feel badly. Is that going to do it? Is that going to cut it? What's odd to me is how many Democrats have uh, in the state of New York uh, sought his uh, resignation and are um, clipping his wings on his ability to uh, to use as the governor the emergency powers in um, in protecting the state from uh, further COVID disaster. The state legislature, in the hands of Democrats, is uh, re um, rescinding the authority they have given him to enact emergency powers. Enact emergency powers and um and 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 what's different about Andrew Cuomo from other democrats around whom the party has circled the wagons i'm thinking of Ralph Northam governor of virginia for example lieutenant governor of virginia who had sexual harassment claims thrown at him who they circled the wagons wagons around bill clinton any number of Democrats who they have um, protected amongst their own, they seem to be a little less excited to protect Andrew Cuomo. And I do think it is the nexus. Yesterday I was trying to figure out why so much uprising against Andrew Cuomo over these cases of sexual harassment, but not the deaths of thousands of New York citizens who died by dint of his order to place them in nursing homes. And um, and Hugh Hallman, who was here, I mentioned him a few moments ago, Hugh Hallman is here, said, well, you know, you, you think about the way the woke have created or the social justice warriors have created crimes in this country, political, social, moral. It's um, It's almost as if, almost as if death and murder are secondary to what the social justice warriors say they care about. And whether it's racism or whether it's sexism. But it is, it is odd to me that so many Democrats have turned on Andrew Cuomo this time. But I think it is because of the nexus of what they know about will be coming from the investigations into his nursing home orders. I think that's what it's about. I don't think, in other words, if it was just one or the other, they would be seeking his resignation. I think it's the combination of both. They each feed off the other. I don't know if he'll survive this. No one does. But what I do know is um, his political career is effectively over. It's effectively over. He may finish out his term he will not be able to run for a fourth term as he planned and wanted to do to best his dad. His dad was a three-term governor. Andrew Cuomo is a three-term governor. He wanted to best his dad. That's over. And I think, too, I got to tell you, in a way, I think Chris Cuomo looks a little worse for the wear in all this as well. I think CNN looks a little worse for the wear in this as well. I think the Emmys look a little worse for the wear in this as well for giving an award to Andrew Cuomo. He was good because he was great when Donald Trump was president as the anti-Trump. He's not needed anymore. 
He's not needed anymore. And thus they can dispense with him because it's not as if New York suffers from a want of Democrats or the ability of Democrats to lead that state. Just as in California, you can afford to lose Gavin Newsom because it is such a Democrat-run state, another Democrat will take his place very likely in the very near future if he isn't reelected in a recall election. One of the things that strikes me in saying all this is that you did not have this with Joe Biden during the Tara Reid accusations. And I think the reason you didn't have it is the same reason that this wouldn't have mattered and these calls for resignation of Andrew Cuomo wouldn't have come if they happened or took place six months ago. In other words, the importance of getting rid of Trump was so primary, was such the number one issue, everything else took a backseat to it. These claims of harassment, they could have come out earlier. They didn't. The people who are claiming harassment by Cuomo, of course, are also members of the Democratic Party. I don't know whether to the, whether they're to the left of, of Andrew Cuomo or not. But they are all Democrats. They are all Democrats. And job number one was to get rid of Trump. Andrew Cuomo served that purpose for a while, as did the people who bit their tongues, who evidently had things to say about him that were pretty negative. But, but, it's interesting, isn't it, that one can actually say credibly that Donald Trump may have a bigger political future than Andrew Cuomo as of today. Isn't that kind of an interesting irony? Who would have seen that coming? Who would have been able to have said that? One of them will have that political opportunity based on what he wants, Donald Trump. One of them won't have those opportunities regardless of what he wants, Andrew Cuomo. His goose is effectively cooked and we'll just go on and on even if he doesn't resign. We'll just go on and on with him as someone put on Twitter as the brunt of a lot of jokes who is a lame duck governor in a state that he helped bring to ruin. You know, I was thinking about what he was saying early on in the COVID crisis, little, little about, about a year ago, starting about a year ago, when his press conferences became such political and journalistic theater. And I was thinking few people are as responsible for the fear and panic this country went through as Andrew Cuomo made us feel. You will recall he was the one who said what New York is going through, you will go through. You will recall he said this is a rocket and it's headed your way. This is a runaway train and it is headed your way. Well, the truth is he wasn't right about that. Some places did an awful lot better than New York and didn't destroy themselves in the process.
He destroyed his state, and he destroyed himself. And while people may think Donald Trump is the tragic figure of Greek proportions here, it's actually Andrew Cuomo. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I was wondering if this story was going to um, have any more life to it. And it's the story about Joe Biden's inability to express himself very clearly or with any level of confidence. It's now something on the order of 42 days since he has given a press conference solo. And our friends at Issues and Insights are reviving this issue in their editorial today. It was clear during the 2020 presidential campaign that Joe Biden was a man in decline. Yet the Democrats ran him as their candidate anyway. Was their obsession with removing Donald Trump from the White House worth turning over the federal machine with its nuclear codes and ability to destroy innocent people to a man whose faculties are failing him? Biden's cognitive challenges have been obvious to anyone who's willing to make an honest assessment. In both public appearances and in controlled conditions, he's slurred words, spewed gibberish, stumbled through remarks even with the aid of a teleprompter, and often had the look of a man lost. His lowlights of 2020 include calling the Declaration of Independence, you know, the thing, appearing to think he was still in the 1970s, 1980s, or 1990s, running for the U.S. Senate, and bumbling basic facts. Now safely embedded in the most important government office in the world for a little more than six weeks and under the protective custody of a media that's covered up his wandering wits and attacked those who would question his cerebral fitness, the man is no better off than he was. In fact, he might have grown worse. The trouble was obvious just last weekend in Houston when Biden made what Pajama Media's Matt Margolis says might be the most disturbing of his verbal slips to date, struggling with names and looking as if he had zero comprehension of what he was reading off a teleprompter. Looking at that same performance, Red State noted that the president, quote, is a man whose mental capacity appears to be rapidly declining before our eyes. You can watch videos of Biden from just five years ago. He's a totally different person. Before leaving Texas, Biden sat down to a Univision interview. Notable about that event, Hot Air reports, is how aggressively Jill Biden asserts herself to clarify and tweak Joe's answers. Why is Jill Biden sitting in on these interviews? Is it that Joe's staff is not confident enough in, Bill's, in Biden's ability to get through an interview? This one lasted only 10 minutes, and he was only asked basic questions. Can he not articulate his own administration's policies well enough on his own? A bit more than a week ago, the Democrats tacitly admitted that Biden can't be trusted with the nuclear codes. A letter signed by more than 30 House members from his own party asked him to consider modifying the decision-making process the United States uses in its command and control of nuclear forces because vesting one person with this authority entails real risk. How can a mentally compromised president adequately deal with the threats of Islamic terrorism, a cagey and dangerous Vladimir Putin, a belligerent Beijing? Or will the tough talks be left to the vice president, who is making phone calls to overseas leaders without Joe Biden anywhere nearby? Is that what voters were thinking about when they chose the Biden-Harris team? Some no doubt were. Nevertheless, the country deserves to know what Biden's handlers knew and when they knew it. There's plenty 
to reason to believe the country was conned by a fairly crooked cabal. Well done, Issues and Insights. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back with the great Amity Schlaes. <laughs> 